This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept the job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash iFreaks. This episode is sponsored by Dev Mountain. Dev Mountain is a coding school with the best world-class learning experience you can find. Dev Mountain is a 12-week full-time development course. With only 25 spots available, each cohort fills quickly. As a student, you will be assigned an individual mentor to help answer questions when you get stuck and make sure you are getting the most out of the class. Tuition includes 24-hour access to campus and free housing for our out-of-state applicants. In only 12 weeks, you'll have your own app in the App Store. Learn to code. It's time. Go to devmountain.com slash ifreaks. Listeners of iFreaks will get a special $250 off when they use the coupon code iFreaks at checkout. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 113 of the iFreaks show. This week on our panel, we have James Uber. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, Matt Rungi. Hi. Do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm uh, Matt Rungi from Astro HQ, where we make AstroPad. It's a new app for the iPad that turns the iPad into a graphics tablet, so you can draw directly into programs like Photoshop. And we just launched in uh, February. Oh, cool. We brought you on today to talk about launching an app in the App Store. I'm curious, do you want to start talking about kind of what you did to get AstroPad launched and how you helped people find it? Yeah, sure. So um, we had a really long development process before it as well. The development took us almost a year and a half for AstroPad. And we were working on the launch probably about two months in total. And um, we started, yeah, about two months out working on the design for a site, working on a video. Because AstroPad is a very unique app, we knew that it was going to be hard to explain, but it was also an advantage because it was so unique compared to everything out there. We hadn't really seen an app like it before that would replace a graphics tablet. And so just to step back a moment, AstroPad is, we're really trying to build it as a replacement for Wacom tablets. So if you're familiar with Wacom tablets at all, they're pressure-sensitive drawing pads that artists and designers use to get their pressure-sensitive input into their their favorite creative tool, Photoshop, Illustrator, whatever it is. The problem with them is they are quite frustrating to learn how to use because you're there's this very weird hand-eye coordination you have to learn. Because normally you're drawing directly on a piece of paper, but with these you're drawing on a pad while you're looking at the screen. So that's quite uncomfortable for artists to learn, you know, to change their drawing habits that they've learned over many, many years. So uh, Wacom also sells this really high-end device, Wacom Cintiq, which is a built-in display and pressure-sensitive pen input. The problem is they're really, really expensive. I'm talking thousands of dollars. So we wanted to see if we could build something like that, but use the iPad to do it. And that's what we did with AstroPad. And it's so it's not a standalone iPad app. It works with your Mac. So we knew that was going to be difficult to get across because most people were going to expect that it was a standalone iPad app. But that also gave us this really unique, fresh angle when it came to launching our app. 
which is something I uh, I gave a talk at AltConf about uh, launching an app. And one thing I really, really stressed is having a unique angle, having something fresh. Uh, because if you're yet another to-do app that looks like all the other to-do apps that are out there, it's going to be hard to get the press to cover you. So I think that's a really interesting thing. I mean, I think a lot of the examples out there for how to learn how to write iOS apps takes you through writing a to-do app. And yeah, I mean, why, why would people use you over something else? I, I really like the angle there. Yeah, yeah, you really... And what I say, actually my talk on, on launching for on the App Store is before you even begin development on the product, your launch begins then. Because you need to have that fresh perspective, fresh angle on it. You need to be unique in some way. And um, the question I pose is you really need to answer for yourself how you're going to be better or different than what's already out there. And if you can't really answer that, it's going to be hard to sell your app to customers. And then even just for the launch, it's going to be really, really hard to convince uh, the tech press to cover it. When you talk about being unique, it almost sets up like a catch-22 because a lot of the problem a lot of people are trying to go in the app store have is that they create something unique and no one has any idea what it is. Is it, is it just about being unique? Yeah, you know, and, and the other thing too is um, you don't have to reinvent an entirely new category to be unique. One example I give in my talk is uh, the to-do, it's actually a to-do app that was really successful, uh, Clear, uh, from Real Mac Software. And that came out, I think it was 2012, and there were tons of other to-do apps at the time. But this one was really covered a ton in the press, uh, had millions of views on their, their launch video. It's been a really, really successful app. And they didn't create an entirely new category. I mean, it was still a to-do app, but they had a really fresh take on it. They had a flat UI well before iOS 7, so that was that was interesting. And then the other thing is they built the entire UI around gestures. And there's no really uh, buttons or anything like that in the UI. Instead, it's just gesture-based. And that was really novel at the time. And in fact, when I went back to look at the articles from the launch, most of the articles talked about that unique gesture-based UI. So there was a part that was like understandable, you know, like, oh, okay, this is a to-do app, but then it has this this fresh take on, on the user interaction. And I think if you are too unique, and I think we we were very concerned about that actually with Astropad, that it was so different than what was already out there that we were afraid that, yeah, people weren't going to get it. And I think that is a, a serious risk, and you have to kind of uh, figure out where you're going to be along that fine line. Yeah, I think I think that's interesting too. I mean, I've seen... I've seen people that, yeah, they basically reinvent the way things work and then people start using the app because it purports to solve a problem and they, you know, it's so different from what they're, they've looked at that it's, you know, they can't figure out how to use it. It's not what they expected. And so they lose people even though it is the answer to their problem because they don't look at it and, and you know, intuitively know what, where to go with it. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I would say it's best to take like certain aspects of it, like the Clear app. They focused on the gestures and have the rest be very recognizable. It's very recognizable as a to-do app. So it's not all these new concepts you need to learn, but there's just something, uh, one particular new new concept. So uh, you know, do you have any guidelines for people to kind of find that happy medium? So you just change a few features or a few ways of doing things from the norm? or well, I would I would also say try to look for a new segment within within your market. So an example is uh, that I actually didn't get to put in my uh, slides is um, Sparrow, the uh, email app that came out a number of years ago on the Mac, 
and that Google eventually bought. So they weren't the first in their category in any way. They weren't the first email app. I mean, email had been around a long time. But they were the first, and they were unique in that they focused on Gmail. And they also had a little bit different user interface, kind of more like a Twitter client by default. So most of the app was still really recognizable as an email client, but kind of the the focus of it was different than all the other email clients out there. So I think that's another way to go about having a unique take on, on an existing category. Another one I gave was example is Disco, which was a Mac app in about 2007, and it was a CD burning app. And in 2007, CD burning apps were... It was definitely not something novel. That was definitely not something new. I mean, even in 2001, Apple had CD burning in iTunes. But what they did do is they had a really nice UI they put on it. And then when it would burn the CD, they had smoke coming out of the top. So it was really fun. It was really playful. And that was uh, something worth talking about. So in developing AstroPad, a lot of people go out there and they release an app and they're app developers. How is this being received? Are, is, it, is it successful? Yeah, it has been, especially with one thing, and you know, mentioning also being too unique is we run into a lot where artists and photographers and designers, people that are used to working with Wacom tablets, understand what AstroPad is. Outside of that, we've kind of struggled with how to message it and how to, um, how to communicate the idea of what AstroPad is. But it's been really, you know, um, among photographers and illustrators have been our main group of users. They've been really liking it. It's been really successful. In fact, before that, we were uh, contract iOS developers. But since the launch, we've been able to flip over to entirely focusing full-time on AstroPad, which is really, really exciting. That's awesome. So you're living the dream. Yeah, yeah. It's It's been great. It's been stressful, but it's it's a lot of fun. When somebody has their idea and they're working on getting ready to launch it, you know, they've kind of got that unique selling proposition is usually what I hear it called. You know, the the thing that makes them kind of stand out from the other apps that do the same thing, what should they be doing before they launch, when they launch, and after they launch? Well, one thing before is you're going to need to spend a lot of time getting a list together of contacts in the press. It's going to be very time-consuming. You need to go out to sites and find writers that have covered similar apps or similar industries and write down why you think they might be interested in what you're doing, write down their email, write down the site, and just keep doing this. Make a giant, giant list. And then as it gets closer to your launch, you're going to want to have some things that you can share with them to show that. Another thing is is as you're approaching a launch, these journalists and people in the tech publishing industry, they're very, very busy people. They're getting pitched all the time by different startup founders, different app developers all the time. And so you need to show that you're credible and that they should listen to you and that you're very serious about what you're doing. So you need to put some things together. Like for us, a big deal was the uh, video we put together showing AstroPad being used, uh, putting together a nice website, putting together uh, a demo of the app, and then really distilling it down into like an elevator pitch that you can put in a short email as it gets closer. And so that you can send those emails out to this big list of people this, this list of journalists and just start sending them emails and you're going to need to, you know, you can't do a mass email either. You're going to need to craft one of these emails for each particular site and each particular person and mention why they might be interested and keep it short and sweet. And then if they're interested, then you're going to want to follow up from there. 
as you get closer, uh, and hopefully from there, you'll get a couple people that are really interested in covering you, a couple sites, and you'll work with them to get the details they need, the um, demo material they need. Uh, we had a press kit we put together, and a press kit's going to be really useful once you get to your launch day, because after a lot of these initial sites come up, there's going to be a lot of other sites that are going to want to cover it, and they're going to be able to go directly to your press kit, get the material they need, and quickly be able to put a lot of posts out. So that helped us a lot for our launch. And then the other thing I would say is after the launch is to just be really engaged on, on social media. So I, I want to ask a few questions about how you approach the press. So do you just kind of give them teasers about what's coming? Are you looking for coverage before you launch or do you want the coverage around when you launch or? We didn't really do any kind of teasers. We thought about it, but we opted not to because we thought, hey, you know, if somebody's going to hear about this, hear about Astropad, we want them to be able to go immediately download the app. So we didn't, we decided not to do any teasers. And we approached these journalists, you know, like um, two weeks before and pretty much laid out, you know, exactly what the app was. Okay, uh, I gotcha. Did you give them any kind of like preview of the app before you launched it so that they were ready to cover it when it came out or? Yep, we gave them pretty much whatever they needed, be it a preview of the app, be it screenshots, uh, any any material they really needed. And what we did is we set an embargo. So we set on a particular day at a particular time, everybody's allowed to release their their articles about Astropad. And before that point, nobody's allowed to talk about the launch, including us on our own website. Then we just, among those people that we got that were in on the embargo, we just shared that material freely. We actually had a hidden version of our site. So if you went to our site prior to that, you know, you'd see nothing there. But we had a hidden version, a hidden URL that we were sending to the press so they could get a glimpse of what things were going to be like on launch day. Gotcha. Did you give them any guidelines or anything that you wanted to particularly call out when they wrote their articles, or did you leave that entirely up to them? Well, left that entirely up to them. There was certain areas I always like to talk about about the app, but um, pretty much they took their their articles really where they, where they wanted to go with them, and we just answered their questions as they came up. Did you do any marketing to people who weren't in the press? Yeah, we did. We also went on uh, Twitter and YouTube and f- tried to find influential artists and reach out to them and tell them about what we were doing. We had some limited success with that. We were able to get some some people on board. We did that also before the launch, which was really, really useful for us. Is We got about 20 people to use the app prior to in a very heavy um, beta testing period that was very, very useful. It helped us really validate the idea a couple months prior to our launch. Um, so some of those folks as well also promoted the app on launch day. But it's also been much easier to do that now to reach out to artists and photographers now that we, we have launched and we have, you know, we can point to coverage on The Verge. We can point to coverage on the next web. You know, it gives us uh, a lot more credibility. So we've been much more successful at that now than we were prior to our launch. Right, but you have kind of a track record there, so you can say, "Go look at all this other stuff," and you know, yep, and then yep. and then they're interested because you you know you've gotten whatever it is that's a tier below them or at their same level. Yep, I'm Absolutely. curious. So, with the the artists and people that you reached out to, did you kind of put that same embargo on them? You can release videos or reviews, you know, the day that we launch. 
Yeah, we did. We said, uh, you know, hey, keep this under wraps until our launch day. You know, nothing official, no NDAs or anything like that. Just, right. you know, more just like, hey, you know, please keep this quiet. We're, we're getting ready for a launch. We'd really like your feedback, though. And, 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 you know, and that worked. That worked great. You know, people respected that and understood what we were trying to do. Yeah. So then you have all this stuff lined up. You've got journalists writing articles. You've got artists, review, you know, working through the app and giving you feedback and all of the kinds of things that you're talking about. So what do you do on launch day? On launch day, it was so much of the work had already been set in motion. I mean, so much of the work is just finding people that will be interested in covering what you're doing. And honestly, most of the people you contact are just never going to even reply to your email. So you got to send a lot, a lot of emails. We visit a lot, a lot of websites. Uh, so a lot of stuff was in motion with the embargo on that already. But the stuff we did in that particular day is being really, really responsive on support. We wanted to be there to put out any fires that came up. Thankfully for our launch, no, we had no significant problems. But we wanted to be there in case something blew up. So we were on support. We were answering emails as fast as they came in. And we we're on Twitter trying to respond to people as they were using, uh, as they were using the app. We were, uh, answering questions. And then the other thing we did is there were some sites that, you know, like social sites, like, uh, hacker news, designer news. Um, trying to think what other ones we, we tried to get on. Uh, product hunt was one that, uh, we worked on promoting, submitting, Astropad 2, and then trying to promote and get that on there. Uh, so that was really the launch day. Now, what did you change on your site? What did it look like before the launch and then on the day of the launch? So then we, we uh, before the launch, we really had like nothing there. I don't even remember if we had anything up other than a blank page. Huh. So it was just completely stealth. And okay. then on the launch day, then all of a sudden we switched everything over. And then we had the site as you see it now. With some a few tweaks here and there. One thing I wish we had done on our launch day is started collecting email addresses right away. We didn't do that. I don't think we put a email sign-up form on our site until like two weeks later. That's something that I really wish we had done right away because a lot of people signed up. Yeah, that makes sense. And then on launch day, you can make the push and get a whole bunch of downloads and get a little bit of traction in the app store as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that what was interesting for us is we're a hybrid Mac and iPad app, we have an app component running on each. So there's mm-hmm. a por- portion you get through the iPad app store, and there's a Mac app you download from our website as well. And so that gave us the opportunity that we could decide which one we really wanted to charge for. Do you want to make the iPad version free and charge for the Mac or vice versa? And for our launch, we opted to charge for the Mac version, and we made the iPad version free on the app store. Which, in the long run, was not a good idea. In the beginning, we thought it was a good idea because everybody we talked to saw it more as an accessory for the Mac and also was willing to pay more money for a Mac app. And also, we could get things like customer email addresses. We wouldn't have to pay the 30% to Apple. And because of the way our Mac app worked, we weren't allowed to be on the Mac app store. So we did that initially. And it worked. You know, it's... We'll never know for sure which would, what would have been better to launch on the payments through the App Store or payments through our website like we did. You'll notice now that we do all purchasing through the App Store and we no longer do payments on our website. So, I mean, it was good in that we were able to offer a trial and a lot of people tried the app and I think that helped spread the word. 
But from a revenue perspective, it's definitely been a lot better to be, you know, a one-click purchase in the app store. Why is that? I think the convenience is just, is just huge. And the other thing too is we had a trial, but a lot of folks would miss that. And I think because they were so used to the app store and they were used to not having a trial, they thought they just had to buy the app outright to try it. So they were kind of doing like we were doing purchasing on the website. We had the trial, but yet they were still treating it like it was an app store purchase without a trial. And um, so I think a lot of people also are are willing just to, you know, they'll even if they don't stay as users, they're willing to purchase it and just give it a try. And and they might be happy with it, but they're like, hey, this app isn't for me. Versus if those folks got the trial, they would never buy it. And so as a result, you'd have to charge a much higher price. Mm-hmm. So a lot of things that you talked about, about getting the word out, talking to press, sending emails, it seemed like you went in with a pretty polished approach. Did you have experience doing that up front, or did you learn? You're just learning on the fly. Very much learning on the fly. We had done some shareware apps like back back in the day, but recently we hadn't. We just tried to devour every bit of info we could find on how to launch a product. Uh, one book that was really helpful is Burned Out Blogger's Guide to PR, which is written by a former TechCrunch writer. Kind of talks about their job as a, as a writer for a place like TechCrunch and what they're looking for and what an ideal pitch looks like. So that was extremely helpful, extremely helpful. And otherwise, just kind of going around, looking at different blog posts and also asking friends that had launched apps, like, hey, what worked for you? You know, what did you learn from your launch? Uh, and we went from there. I mean, we really, um, the week prior to that, we were concerned, the week prior to our launch, we were concerned we weren't going to get any coverage at all, you know, because we felt like we had no idea what we were doing. We managed to pull it off, but it wasn't like we were we were very, very experienced at this. We just kind of um, learned as we went. That's very cool. One of the takeaways I get from your experience is you know, you're selling to a market that does this for a living, you know, photographers, illustrators, yeah. that. But the second thing I got is that you put a ton of work into the promotion, making sure people can find yes. it. And yes, there's a lot of code that you wrote. And this is, these are pretty substantial apps. You were working on it for a long time, but the effort behind actually promoting it was, was huge. I think that's what's lost in a lot of developers who think that, oh, I'll make this really cool app and people will just discover it. And it really, it really works like that. Yep, you you have to pack. We spent a lot of time figuring out the messaging, how to package it up, and how to communicate clearly what it is that Astropad does. Our website went through so many revisions, not the necessarily the design, but more the the copy that we had, the copywriting. It's just it was amazing how difficult that was to communicate in as few words as possible. You know, what Astropad was about and what are the key benefits of Astropad? What you see on, on the site, you know, was the result of weeks and weeks of thinking about it. How do you go about figuring that out? Cause, you know, cause I have uh, some apps I want to write and I think I know what the payoff is, you know, for the customer, but I don't actually know that. Well, one huge thing is just talking to users because even for us, what we have on our current site, I think we could focus even more on the benefits and less on some of the features. Of like, hey, it works over USB or Wi-Fi. You know, we could focus more on what does that mean to you as a user? You know, how does that benefit your workflow rather than the specific uh, specifications of, of, of what it can do? You know, we say like, oh, it's 60 frames per second. Well, you know, maybe what, what does that mean? You know, we should say maybe smoother drawing. 
It keeps up with you as you draw rather than 60 frames per second. And what was really useful to help figure that out was talking to users because we kept thinking of it as like developers, very technical minded. And even when we talked to developer buddies, it wasn't until we went out there and we're talking to artists and photographers that would see it in a totally different light. They didn't care about the technology at all. They just took it for granted that different aspects of it worked. Like, um, so we mirror a part of the screen and often we'd have developers like, how do you do this? How does, how does the mirroring work? You know, artists don't care at all. They wouldn't ask about that at all. They would just comment on, wow, the, the screen quality is really crisp. And they'd be like, oh, okay. Let me write that down. So I would kind of like sit down with some of these, these folks and just ask them what they liked about it. And often I could take that and use it as a quote or, or massage it and use it as a bit of copy on the site. You know, what are the benefits from their perspective? Yeah, that's very cool. And by mirroring, you mean you're drawing on the iPad and showing up on the, on your Mac. Yep. 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 And it mirrors what you see on your Mac onto your iPad as well. So you can draw right directly on it. Okay. Um, just to get in a little tech talk here, uh, how did the, you were aware of that connection? Such so as standard yeah. networking, TCP, IP? Yeah. No, well, it's actually not TCP, but one final thought on the marketing side of things is that what we also did with the site is we would write down, you know, some copy we had and we thought was great. And we just kind of let it simmer, let it sit there for a week. And then we come back to it in a week and be like, no, this is terrible. And, and we, you know, continually revise it. The way you, the same way you iterate on an app, you come back to it again and again and again. We did the same thing with the website. Over time, it got much, much better. But getting back to the technical stuff, yeah, that's that's an interesting story, how we managed to do that. And we started as high level as we could. And pretty quickly, we found that wasn't going to work. And by high level, I mean, we started with like TCP. We're like, hey, we're just going to, we're going to open up a TCP socket. And we're going to send data from the Mac to the iPad. Well, that doesn't really work very well for extremely demanding real-time application like what we're doing for a number of reasons. And what we had to do is we had to drop down to actually make a UDP. We're sitting on top of UDP and we actually have our own network protocol. We, we packaged this up too in a bit of marketing. We call it liquid is like our marketing term for our tech. And that includes both our, we have a custom video codec in there and we also have a custom network protocol and it's like our competitor to airplay and we call it liquid. Wow. Okay. That's pretty ambitious. So you just send it. Yeah. So you get your own protocol, sending it. Via UDP, what is development like that for the Mac and iOS? I did socket programming way back when, you know, Berkeley sockets. Is it still the same? Same, same interfaces, old, same okay. thing. Yeah, and in fact, we started with some of the higher level stuff. Like we kept going down layers and layers and layers. We would start using some of the, um, you know, Cocoa stuff for doing. I think we. I'm trying to remember. I think it was some CF network stuff. It's actually not even Cocoa. I guess it's Core Foundation. But we were doing that for networking and quickly ran into a limitation, had to drop even lower. So what we have is really the same thing you would have programmed years ago, the Berkeley style sockets, the old school way of doing it. And we, you know, we started at that much higher level and it was just, we kept prototyping and, and pushing it. And one thing is we knew it had to be really fast. We knew it had to be as no lag as we could possibly achieve. Because if you're going to draw on this, you don't want to be waiting for your strokes to appear. They need to appear as fast as we possibly can. So that's why we kept punching through layers and going deeper and deeper and deeper into the system and try to get lower and lower lag and latency. Okay, so the problem with the TCP is lag. Because with TCP, you'll guarantee it gets there, but yep. you know, it may take a while. Yeah, there's a couple of things with TCP. One is that... 
as you as you said, yeah, you're going to guarantee that it's going to get there. But for us, because we're really real time, if a packet's lost, TCP is going to resend that data. But the thing is, in our case, that data is not really useful to us anymore. The screen has already updated since then. So don't resend that old stale data. What we really want to do is cut out some new data and resend that in its place. So the resend mechanism of TCP really wasn't appropriate at all for what we were doing. The other thing is that TCP also optimizes for bandwidth and not the latency. And there's kind of a trade-off in either either direction. You know, you push more and more bandwidth, you trade you might trade that off for latency. In our case, we didn't want the maximum bandwidth. We wanted the lowest latency possible. And TCP doesn't optimize for that at all. TCP is trying to push as many megabytes per second as possible. For our case, we wanted the lowest round trip time. We wanted the lowest time possible to get a packet from the Mac to the iPad and then to get a packet back to us. And TCP is not a great solution for that either. Now, what are the restrictions from you know, the device and the network where it's set up? Do you have to be on the same Wi-Fi network? Yep, yep. For us, we really optimize for the local Wi-Fi. Uh, so you have to be on the same network and the... Um, yeah, the same Wi-Fi network for for really to work best. And that's another interesting thing about TCP is we optimize for wireless. And TCP was not created for the wireless environment. And the reason is because TCP looks for drop packets as a way to tell when it needs to slow down. So in order for it to figure out how fast it can send data, it keeps sending data to the receiver until it detects a packet loss. And then it's like, okay, I guess I'm, you know, I've congested the line. I'm sending as much as I possibly can. I better back off. The problem is, is in a wireless environment, you're just going to get random noise. You're just going to get random fluctuations that cause packets to be dropped. And that's going to trick TCP and it's going to think it needs to slow down. When in fact, on a wireless network, you should just keep going. And so that's another optimization we were able to make. So we don't take packet loss into account at all. And in fact, we try to actively avoid packet loss because once we've reached packets being dropped, that means we've already like filled up the buffers in the router. We filled up the buffers in the computer. And yes, that maximizes your bandwidth, but now you've got all these buffers filled with potentially stale data and that's going to make the lag higher. No, it's very cool. So very, very cool tech and you're handling those problems. So what's causing the fluctuations in Wi-Fi? Like turning the light on and off, electrical equipment, whatever things yeah, cause that? Yeah, it could be any of those things. Even like um, water. I think it was is it the two, I forget which, either the 2.4 or the 5 gigahertz band. One of them, water droplets interfere with a lot. So, uh, you know, you'll see that if it's raining and you've got a uh, network connection outside, it won't work as well. So things like that, just Lots of random, you know, signals bouncing all over the place, interfering. A lot of interference is the main problem. And that will cause these these random packet drops that will confuse TCP. In our case, we'll just keep going. We'll just keep powering through it. And then we're not also resending that, that stale data. Another thing with that, too, is when TCP does stop and starts resending data, and it's not only is it resending old data... But it stops everything else it's doing. It's like, hey, I need to get this new, I need to get this piece of data to the receiver. In our case, you know, hey, if we lose a packet along the way, that's fine. Just keep going. 
Just keep sending the other data for other parts of the screen. Don't stop everything you're doing and keep trying to resend for that one portion of the screen because we want to maintain the interactivity and the low latency. So how long has Astropad been out? Astropad has been out since February. February 18th was our our launch day. So now that you're six months into this, uh, it's funny because James is interested in the technology and I'm interested in the marketing. But, uh, <laughs> no, it's good. I, uh, I find both sides really interesting. Um, I, I guess my question is, what are you doing for marketing now, now that you're not in the middle of a launch? That's been hard for us, you know, because most of our background is in development. You know, we know mm-hmm. the engineering side of things. So it's been just like we were been, we learned how to, how to do the launch part, how to do the PR. There's been a lot of learning on the marketing side. And we could do a lot better job than we are. And I think we need to continue pushing on that because so you can launch new versions of the app, you can launch new products and you can get a PR boost for that. But one big question for us has been, what do you do in those in-between periods? And we have taken advantage of, of doing more launches to get more press coverage. We did a joint partnership by 53, the makers of uh, paper and pencil. We added support for pencil. And so we did a, a joint launch with them. And they covered us on their blog, and we um, showed up in, on some of the press again, the next web, and we put a video together. And that's been successful in, in generating more, more attention. And in fact, just yesterday, we did an announcement about Astropad being used for photography because we noticed photographers were a good portion of our customers. But all of our marketing material right now is really more towards illustrators. So we put together some new material, and we... Um, put together a new video highlighting AstroPad and Photoshop being used for photography. And then we made some you know, optimizations to make it better for photography. And then we, we made that announcement. And we got covered on a um, uh, photography site, F-Stoppers, and, and we're running a sale 30% off right now as part of our push for photography. So we've been trying to find opportunities there to do other launches, kind of like micro-launches and spread the word about AstroPad. We've also been trying to do... A lot of social media stuff, trying to blog, but that's been really, really hard for us to do, just just with so much to do as a two-person shop. So in your two-person shop, you're both developers. Did you kind of split the responsibilities, or was one of you more responsible for the marketing and the other more responsible for keeping the, the app development going while the other did that? You know, that's something we're still trying to figure out the best arrangement for. We've split generally the marketing side of things. Like one of us will work on development on one part of it because we've, we've split up development as well. My co-founder, Giovanni Dinelli, he does mo- like a lot of the UI and the network side of things. I am more on the video codec side. And so we split up that responsibility as well. And, and we kind of alternate working on that versus working on marketing and handling support. And it's been, you know, the context switch we found going between marketing and the business development side of things and the development side, the context, which is huge. And we've really, um, we've been figuring out that it's best to like focus on one thing for a good amount of time. We tried doing like every other day or every couple days. I mean, even there, it's, it's just such a, a different way of working, a different way of thinking to go from the, the business development marketing side to the, the development, the hardcore development side. All right. Well, um, it looks like we're kind of getting to the end of our time. Is there anything else that we should talk about with regards to launches or AstroPad that we didn't bring up? No, I would really, um, you know, stress the having a unique angle on whatever it is has have a fresh take on what you're doing. The other thing too is, I would say, um, look for a niche too for your for your app. 
it's been really great for us to focus on the art side of things, the professional creative. It's worked really well rather than having just like your market be any Mac user or any iPad user. That's a much harder market to market to. And you're also going to have a lot more competition. So I would really look to niches. Uh, one, one example I always point to is Forflight. And they make software for pilots, really general aviation, people that do it as a hobby. Although they do more corporate stuff now too. I used to work for Garmin, so that's how I used to work on the aviation, some aviation stuff myself with Garmin. But they've been a really successful business because they've focused on aviation, making pilots really, really happy. As a result, they have less competition, they have a well-defined market segment, and they're able to charge a lot more money. Because if you're going after the general iOS user, you're going to be stuck charging a dollar ninety nine, ninety nine cents, or even free, as as a lot of apps are going now. And so it's much easier to um, focus on those those niches. Where like even for us, you know, we can charge twenty five, thirty dollars for our app rather than two ninety nine. At two ninety nine, we couldn't make it if we had to do that. So definitely look to the niches and look for a unique angle. Is what I would say. All right. Let's go ahead and get to the picks. Jane, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure, I'll start it. I'll start things off. I've got one pick, which isn't really a product, but it's uh, script use. So one of the common things that we're talking about in tech these days is how we're, you know, excluding women. How the language we use, even do something that's like "Hey guys," and using "guys" is, you know, can be harmful. And I'm trying to change my my language, and a lot of people are. And one little trick I ran across that uh, someone in a Slack group that I'm in did is they created a little script that every time someone says guys in there, uh, it replaces it with something. It says, I think you mean team. I think you mean squad. I think you mean gang. So a little friendly reminder to, you know, be careful the words that we use because you know, it is important to, to people. So I'm just keeping things that, you know, if we can be gender neutral, do it. So it's something I've been trying to change and this is a good way to help encourage that in the team. So if you have any influence on teams, your Slack, Slack groups, or, you know, however you do IM, um, it's a good technique. Just, uh, it's a little thing that just replaces, uh, as Slackbox responds to anything with guys in it with, hmm, I think you met team, didn't you? So nice little hack that I ran across the local woman put together on our local Slack channel. Yeah, it's clever. I've definitely been guilty of that myself. I've tried to actively say folks, you know, when I'm talking instead of guys. I used to say guys all the time. So definitely also try to make a concerted effort myself. Undoing years of just habit. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. I've got a few picks here. So the first one I'm going to pick is Kanban Flow. I think I've picked it on the show before because I use it for managing my schedule through the week. But I recently created Kanban Flow boards for each of the shows and invited the the hosts on there so that they can uh, give us input on ideas for the show. So uh, anyway, I, I'm i really liking it. Um, I've been using it for quite a long time, and so I'm going to pick that. The other things I'm going to pick are Handbrake. Now, Handbrake is a graphical user interface or GUI over the top of FFmpeg, and I'm using it to convert the videos from JS RemoteConf over to just smaller resolution videos so that uh, people can get them on their iPhones and iPads, mostly iPhones and iPods. But anyway, so it's it's a really handy thing. You can queue up all the videos in a folder, uh, which is basically what I did there. So I'm going to create an RSS feed. I'm going to put them out for free 
where you can subscribe to get all of the remote conference videos. So keep an eye out for that. It'll be on devchat.tv. I just haven't finalized everything yet, but I've got the artwork and everything together. I just need to plug everything in. One other thing I'm doing is I have done a few trainings for different companies on how to do testing, and uh, I'm not particularly skilled at iOS testing, but if you need to understand testing concepts, then I can definitely do training on that. And I know this is an iOS show, but if you're doing Rails, Ruby on Rails, then I can definitely help you out with testing your app front to back, JavaScript and Ruby. So um, if you're looking for anything like that, feel free to email me, chuck at devchat.tv. I'm also going to have railstestingcoach.com up by the time this goes live. So you can go check it out there. And even if you aren't interested or don't do that kind of work, I would really appreciate any referrals. So if you know a company that does Rails and needs testing help, then let them know that I'm available to help them out. And I'll do both on-site and over-the-internet training. So if they just want a couple hours, that's great. If they want to fly me out for a couple of days, that's great too. But yeah, just let me know. Matt, what are your picks? Yeah, so I have a few picks. One of them is a marketing book that I just absolutely love. It's my favorite marketing book. It's called The 12 Immutable Laws of Marketing. And it's from the early 90s. And it talks about really... Key things you should think about when you're marketing app, business, whatever it is. Uh, one of them being that you should be first and unique in some aspect. And the, um, the second one is, their second law is that if you can't be first and unique in some way, you need to create like a new market segment where you can be first. So this, a lot of the marketing I was talking about comes directly from this book. A lot of the ideas I talked about come directly from this book. Great example of like, Resegmenting a market would be like what uh, Sparrow did with their email client. Said, "Hey, we're not an email client for anybody. We're an email client specifically for Gmail, and they could be the first Mac native email client for Gmail." So, a lot of good stuff in that book. I highly recommend you check it out. And it's a short, to the point, uh, twelve immutable laws of marketing. And uh, if you're interested in the computer network stuff I was talking about, the best book I found for learning about uh, computer networks is called Computer Networks by Andrew S. Tannenbaum. It's a great book. It uh, goes in an incredible amount of depth, but is still very, very readable and not overly mathematical. And my final pick is an app that I haven't seen mentioned much before that I've really been enjoying called Findings App. It's a Mac app. And I've been using it kind of like a daily journal. It's actually meant for like uh, science experiments, but I've been using it as a development journal uh, because especially as we do a lot of experiments with AstroPad, we try to figure out, you know, different ways to um, reduce the latency or improve the quality or speed, you know, speed things up in general. We try a lot of different experiments. And my memory isn't very good. So it's, it's best if I jot these things down. And I've tried some of the other journaling apps, and I haven't really liked them. Findings been the best one I've used, and it's really well done. So check it out. Even if you're not using the experiments part of it, they've got a bunch of stuff in there that I have no idea what it is. It looks like it's for like biology experiments or something. I don't know. I just completely ignore it and use the other parts of the app, and it's been really, really nice. So that's uh, that's my picks. I should also add that definitely check out Matt's talk at AllFConf, which should hopefully be online soon. They mentioned it would be up in a couple weeks, a couple weeks ago, but yeah, Matt's talk on the subject was a really great primer to what we've been talking about. So definitely check it out. All right. Sounds terrific. Well, thank you both for uh, being here, and we'll wrap up, and uh, we'll catch everybody next week. 
This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the iFreaks and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at iFreakShow.com slash form. 